And uh, if you have kids, then you know the first thing that you go, if they're screaming or shouting, you go, blue yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, then it's fine. <laughs> there's no blood. It's normally kind of, it's normally kind of okay. But when there's blood, that's the moment that you rush to the hospital or do like the whole thing. So seeing blood is never, never a good sign, especially if it's your own blood. So um, the Bible is actually a very bloody book. And uh, we, for the most part, have um, de-blooded it <laughs> or cleaned it up and, disinf and disinfected it a lot because it bl blood is a difficult metaphor to work with and it's a difficult image to work with. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book called uh, Giving Blood. It's about preaching. So uh, it's a guide for preachers and it's, it's called Giving Blood. When you give blood as a preacher, you don't give your own blood, you give the blood of Christ. So it's called Giving Blood. And his publisher, he's written like 60 books, and his publisher refused. They had the biggest fight because he wants to call the book Giving Blood. And every single chapter is about blood transfusions, blood this, blood that, blood so it's all it's a whole book is a blood metaphor. And his publisher refused to publish a book with a blood metaphor. And you're going, well, if we as the church have a, pro a problem with the blood metaphor, we actually have a very big problem. So we've made the, the Bible like a little a bloodless book. This is often how you see Jesus depicted on the cross. Very, very little blood and very, very clean. And it's made, it's almost like family-friendly. Right? So like family-friendly Jesus, very, um, very easily palatable for, you know, good church people. Because you can't have a really bloody Jesus on the cross. It's, it's gross. So... Um, <coughs> We'll get, we'll get back to that. We're going to take a long little trip around. This is, this is the temple. These are pictures I took a while back when we were there. So this is what the temple grounds look like today. So that wall is actually from the original structure. And the big platform is on there. So King Herod decided to build the, sec this the second temple. And what he did was to say that we're gonna, he's going to take the hill of Moria, or the mountain, and flatten it. And like cut the whole piece off so all the architects and everybody in you know is like, I know there's this big hill. You know what I want to do? I want to move all this earth and make it one big platform that's two kilometers in circumference. And then your building contractor goes, okay, I just imagine all those meetings with King Herod when he's like, I've got an idea. <laughs> and everybody's like, I know, because he also built a palace. Um, uh, what's the name? In the desert on top of a mountain. Must... Masada, Masada, yeah, I want to say Masai, Masada, Masada. So also on top of the mountain, in the middle of the desert, by the Dead Sea, there's no water, no nothing. It's like, I've got an idea, I want to build. So King Herod, this took 40 years to build. So at the moment, the, the mosque stands there where it was believed that Muhammad went up to heaven with his horse, as one does. <laughs> so that's, it's been there since about the 7th century. And this is what the whole fight is about, obviously, since forever. This, I just wanted to put this in. So this is the, it's the gate, the golden gate. And you can see it is shut. Because it's believed, the Jewish people believe, that when the Messiah comes, he will enter into the temple ground through that gate. So what the Muslims then did was they shut the gate. <laughs> and what they also did is right in front of the gate, if you look there, all, all this, actually, there. The gate, is, it sits about there on this picture. So all of this are Muslim graves. 
because you can't enter into the temple if you've walked through a graveyard. So you'll be unclean. So the graves are there to kind of protect the grounds from the Messiah walking in because you, you won't be able to walk through graves. Interesting, that's just a side note. So this is a model of the temple that's in Jerusalem. I just want to like, so show you like the size. So that's the gate that we just saw in the, in the previous one. So the temple was massive. And what you need to understand is that Judaism in the day of Jesus was, a, was like a temple-centered religion. Right? Often we get told, Mike, you, you want to come in and sit? Yeah, grab, but there's a, I'm sure there's a chair somewhere. There's a chair there, or outside or somewhere. Thanks, man. Uh, Mike take care of all the cars. So um, it was a temple-centered religion. So often what we get taught is that it was all about the law. Right? So we get taught that Judaism is a law-based religion. Like you have to keep the law, and then you go to heaven or something like that. It's a space here. And, uh, but it, it wasn't. Like the law was obviously a part of it. You didn't keep the law in order to get saved. You kept the law because you were Jewish. So that's a very big, and often a misunderstanding that people have, that you have to keep the law, and then Jesus will, or God will really, really like you, and then he'll, you'll be in. But it actually works in reverse. You, are, you keep the law because of your blood, because you are Jewish. So, but at the time of Jesus, the law wasn't, wasn't, I don't want to say not important, but it wasn't like the central thing. The central thing was the temple. And it was always the temple. Everything is about the temple. Up until 70 AD, then the Romans came, and they flattened Jerusalem. And then um, the rabbis and everybody that was left, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, had a big meeting and went, we don't have a temple anymore. Now we need to replace the temple with something else. And they went, well, what do we have? It's like, we have... Torah, we have the law. So they made, they literally made a choice at a big meeting to say, now we're going to place this in the center of our religion. And we say that studying Torah is like going to the temple, is like bringing offerings. It isn't that. So in the meantime, while we still don't have a temple, Torah is center. So this is like, it's super important to understand. So in the time of Jesus, temple was a center. Temple centered. Offerings, sacrifices. That's what it was about. That's how you got close to God. That's how you got your sins forgiven, was through sacrifices. Blood needed to flow. Right? That's how it worked. That no matter how nice you were, no matter how much you studied the Torah, it doesn't matter. If the blood doesn't flow, it doesn't count. That's kind of what you need to have in your mind. So every single person in ancient times or ancient Mediterranean area knew that sacrifice is the way. That is the way that it works. So the temple, just as an interesting fact, so... It is 16 stories high, so you can compare it to the rest of the... I think, did I put in another picture? Yeah, so that's 20, about 20,000 people lived in Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem in the, day, in, the time of, in the time of Jesus. So the second temple, that was uh, King Herod's um, platform. So he wasn't Jewish, so he couldn't go into the temple. So he had that built so he can see, so he can stand and look from it. And there, that is the fort, the Roman fort which is like just a little bit higher than the temple. Like a couple of meters. It's, yeah, it's like a little thumb. So we just want to let you know who's still in control. So it's like just a little bit higher than the temple. So it's 16 stories high. It uh, had big golden panels on that door, so it faces east. And um, when the sun comes up, it reflects in the golden polished um, panels, and it would look like there's light from inside the temple shining out. 
And the temple was considered to be the center point of earth. Literally in scripture it says, the temple is the navel of the world. It is the place where literally creation started. Jewish people believe that that is where everything started. So, and it, and it kind of circles out from there. That that is the point where heaven touches earth. So every single thing is about the temple. They, it's next to a spring. So the spring flows here and then goes around there. And the reason for that is it was a bloody place. Right? So if you, if you do, the, do the math a little bit. So every morning and evening, there had to be a lamb slaughtered with the opening and the closing of the temple. Nine o'clock in the morning and about three in the afternoon. Yeah, to, there was a lamb that was slaughtered. Right? So make that little, just a little sum. So 365 days in a year times two. 700 odd something lambs that were slaughtered. So that's now excluding all the other sacrifices that happens during, during the day. And especially during Passover. So every single family, you had to bring either a lamb. If you were very, very rich, you could bring a calf. And then the second option was a lamb with no blemish. A lamb. And then the third option was doves. If you were poor, like Jesus' mother and father, that brought doves to the temple. And then if you were super, super poor, you can bring flour. Right? That was like the lowest one, was flour. So lots and lots of blood. There was a basin in the temple made of bronze. It was five meters in diameter, so like this, almost like this room, filled with water. It was called the sea. And the reason for that is for the priests to wash in, to clean themselves. Because a priest was nothing other than a butcher. So we have this idea of priests in their white gear, looking all holy, and the incense and candles and things like that. A priest in the time of Jesus was a butcher. So they would have been mostly covered in blood or very kind of filthy and working with blood, killing animals the whole day long. And some of the historians, I think it's a bit much, but some of the historians estimate that up to a million animals were slaughtered in the temple in a year. I think it's a bit much. I, my guess would be like something about 100 or 200,000. But that's a lot of blood. So there were special ways in the temple to drain the blood from the altar and the spring was there to get all the blood actually out of, out of the temple. So but can you imagine that smell? L you know what a butchery smells like? That smell. Like imagine, you know what burnt meat smells like? Like no, it's not a nice bry place. It's they, they burn it. Sometimes they'll bry the meat and then they'll eat it. That's some of the sacrifices. But... Many of them, you burn it to a complete crisp, to charcoal. Do you know what that smells like? So you can imagine what Jerusalem smelled like, right? Not so pretty. That's also why they had a lot of incense in the temple, burning incense all the time. It was probably to hide all the carcasses and all the smell of all this blood, or try and hide it. So, um, <coughs> as you said, the temple was the center. So this is the western wall. It's, so if you... If the temple is there, the western wall is right behind it, right there, okay? So what, when the Israeli people, Jewish people came back to Israel, after the Second World War, they took this piece of land and bulldozed all the houses that were here. Kind of, there's a big story behind that because they forcibly removed the people who were living there for generations and then to make themselves a place to pray. Anyway, that's just my little political two cents. But um, this is the western wall. So you can walk in there and you can walk all the way along the wall and there's a tour that you can take that takes you to the base. This is about, I think about 10 meters higher than it used to be in the, in the time of Jesus. So 
obviously it's built upon, built upon, built upon. And the reason for this, that they opened this part to pray, is this is the closest that you can get to the Holy of Holies. So if you look back, so the Holy of Holies would obviously be in there, and then the Western Wall is there. So that's the closest you can get to that. Because again, remember what I said, like the temple, that's the center of the world. That is where God lives. That is where His presence dwells, right? So that's the closest you can get. So the mosque is now standing just behind there. You can't see it from there. There's the steps to go up to the mosque. Uh, and then people would stick prayers into the wall. And then Jewish people would be there praying, standing next to the wall all day. Now, here's a photo that I took really, really quickly because people actually get angry when you take pictures of them there. Um, they, when they pray, they stick their face into the crack because it's the closest they can. We asked the one guy, why, why do people, why do they do that? Why do they stick their face into the cracks when they pray? It's like, beca- it says, because this is now the closest we can get to our God. Because if you press your face into the cracks, you're a little bit closer to the Holy of Holies, which means you are a little bit closer to God. And this is always like, it's like the saddest image for me ever, that you think that that's how you need to get close to God. So at the temple there was sacrifice, like I said. Now, the word sacrifice means sacri, means holy. And from the Latin, sacri means holy. And phice means to make. So sacrifice means to make something holy. Right? So, and we all know this. Sacrifice is almost this universal theme. Like we all know, in order to, in order to restore something, in order to make something holy again. So holiness as we've said many times, is like it's a relational concept. It means when things are whole, we, as, just as we sang now, you can make me whole again. So whole and holy, in Ephesians it says you are whole and holy. Normally we think of holiness as something that's separate, but it's actually something that's connected. So something that's in relationship with God, that is in relationship with, another, with one another. So the woman with the flowing of blood in... Um, that touches Jesus' hem, she was separated because she was unclean. Right? So she needs to be made clean. So, so Jesus heals her and then says to her, Shalom. And Shalom means peace, but it means holistic wholeness. And that's what holiness is. Is that you have to, in order to restore something, in order to make something good and beautiful and whole, there needs to be sacrifice to make holy. So, and we all know this. Like if you want something right? If you want this degree or you want something for your children or, you know, whatever, you need to make a sacrifice in order to put the time in to study or in order to do this, do that. If you want to, you know, whatever it is that you want to achieve, there's a sacrifice that needs to happen. You need to make it holy. So if I want my kids to have a certain education, I need to make sacrifices, make it holy so that they can be whole and joined and holistically well, right? So that's what sacrifice is is the idea that there needs to be death of some sort in order for something to be made holy, connected. Okay? Is everybody with me? I know this is like very lecturing kind of thing, but just like stick with me. It'll all make sense in the end. Um, So, (coughs) what do you think does the holy making, what will it cost to make the entire creation holy. Right. Well, how big does the sacrifice 
need to be to make the entire creation whole and connected. So here's the thing. We often think of Jesus, or Jesus, you have this little thing that we say, Jesus died for my sins, right? It's like, no, Jesus didn't die for your sins. He died for the sin and the brokenness of the entire creation. It's not just about, it's, and it's big news, but it's not just about you, <laughs> right? And because you drank too much at your 21st birthday party and Jesus, like, it's about a lot more than that. It's about that too, don't get me wrong. It's about that too, but it's about a lot more than that. It's about the entire creation. If you read Paul, it says the entire creation waits and groans for the sons of God to be revealed. And the moment we start thinking about the cross and Jesus' sacrifice, His holy making, like that, it makes the picture a lot bigger and more beautiful. So what would it cost to make the entire creation holy? So let's talk about crucifixion. So crucifixion was invented by the Persian people and perfected by the Romans. And it was designed to completely break a person, right? To break you emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It was the most long, drawn-out way to die that was known at the time. So Cicero, the philosopher, said that um, if you know that you're going to be crucified, it is better for you to take your own life before because it's the absolute worst way to die. And uh, Josephus said that it is, it is the most gruesome way to die. It is not fit for anybody to even see it. And there was another historian whose name I've forgotten who said that the three worst ways to die is being burnt alive, being chopped up into pieces, and being crucified. And crucified is the worst of the three. So, and what... Something that we don't normally understand as well is that crucifixion was, a very, was common. It was a tool used by the Romans to keep people in check because it was a very public display of sentencing, of, of executing. Right? So it was a way to squash rebellions. So with, when there was a rebellion, the slave revolt led by Spartacus. I am Spartacus, Spartacus. 6,000 people was crucif were crucified in one day on a stretch of road, one of the main highways that led into Rome, for 200 kilometers. People were next to the road, crucified. So the historians say that you could hear the moaning from miles away. So now imagine you drive from here to what's 200 kilometers away, Kurenstadt, all right? And on the N1, every couple of meters, there's a person hanging on a cross. So that's how, how common it was. And, um, but we've made We've made crucifixion something that's easy, you know? A cross is a, is a piece of jewelry that we wear. But it's akin to wearing a, a lethal injection or a electric chair or a gallows rope around your neck going, this is some gold. It's like <laughs> the cross was not the symbol of Christianity up until the fourth century. It was too vile and too difficult as of a symbol to even wear or carry. So the first symbols of Christianity are uh, fishing boats, fishing boats, doves, fish, and sheep, lamb, and a peacock for some reason. I have no idea. <laughs> but um, I think the peacock has got to do with life and vitality and whatever. But it's, you know, he's like fish, boat, lamb, peacock. So, but we've made it easy. 
right? We've made the cross kind of easy and disinfected it. And we, now we wear his jewelry and we have our kids make little mosaics about it. And, you know, how weird would that be? You make a glitter like electric chair. Like, we need, what my, my goal with this is, like, is that you need to understand how vile and how hard this is. So what would precede um, crucifixion normally is, what's um, gesling in Engels? Lynching. No, no, no. Gesling. So it's uh, chasti- chastising. Chastising. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, whipping. <laughs> Let's just stick there. So normally, what would happen before and, and what happened with Jesus is that you would be whipped. And it was believed, so in, in Jewish law, you could only be whipped 39 times because it was believed that 40 would kill you. So it'll hit you 40, 39 times. And it was a whip, like if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, that's pretty accurate. So it was a whip with like um, multiple cords and then little pieces of metal, little pieces of bone would be tied into the cord. And then a Roman soldier would whip you and he would give it all he's got. So in Roman times, in Roman culture, the guy that whips you decides when it is over. And normally what they did is they went on as long as they could, until they nearly passed out. And then they would turn you over and hit you on the other side as well. So the pieces of metal and pieces of bone would get stuck in your flesh and it would rip your flesh open. And it was not uncommon to see a rib flying and there would be obviously dogs and things gathering around to pick up like little pieces of flesh. And most people would not even survive that. They wouldn't even get to the crucifixion. So crucifixion itself was, uh, this is not, this is like not going to be easy to hear. I just like, if you want to, if you're sensitive, like you should like go have coffee or something. <laughs> but, uh, so crucifixion itself was a super public display. Crosses were low to the ground. So you could look people in the eye. It wasn't as high. In the, normally in the Passion of the, you see those high super crosses on, on a hill. That's not what it was like. It was next to the road in a very public place, like by the city gate. And you would be able to look people in the eye. Like even if you read the text, it says that they gave Jesus um, wine, sour wine on a hyssop branch. Now if you Google hyssop, it's a little bush like this. It's like a floppy tuckies. Like it's not a long stick. It's a little small branch. And the reason you want a little branch is because you don't want to touch, you don't want to get close to that person because they are bloody on the cross. So they would strip you naked. We don't see Jesus naked often in art. Sometimes you do, but it's very rare. But he, Jesus would have been naked on the cross. And he would have been, when he was um, whipped, he would have been whipped naked as well. So all your, all your stuff would be bloody and mush. And uh, they would drive about 10 to 15 centimeter nails. A friend of mine has, actually has a couple that they dug up in a site. They're about that long. Through your wrists. And your feet, like double your feet over and through the feet. So the reason the wrist is because the hand can't hold the um, weight of the body. The nail would rip out. So it will go through the wrists. And um, right right next to the road, obviously. So people can see you in the eye, spit on you, laugh at you. You can be humiliated. So they would drop the cross into the ground. So often it would be a cross like the one that we normally see, a cross like that. Or it might be uh, just one pole where the hands are above the head and the, with one nail driven through, or just onto a tree. So 
crucifixion still happens today sometimes. In the Second World War, the Nazis used to crucify Jewish people onto the walls of barns and would, uh, with bayonets from their, from their guns and would push the, through their hands and feet and even through their testicles. So in the time of Jesus, what would happen is that they wanted to draw out the suffering as long as possible. So what would happen to you on the cross is you would asphyxiate because you're hanging and you're, it's pressing on your lungs. So, if, so the only way for you to get air is to push yourself up against the nails, to like pull yourself up against the nails. On the, so, or what, so what people would do to try and not suffer so long is they would purposefully slump down on the cross so that they would asphyxiate and so they can commit suicide on the cross. So in order to prevent this, the Romans put a little seat, just not high enough so that you can live, but not low enough so that you can die. And then you, and then you wouldn't be able to commit suicide as easily. And then what people would do is they would arch their backs and kind of pull over the little seat to try and kill themselves. And to prevent this, they would hit, if you were a man, they would hit a nail through your penis into the cross to hold you in a certain place. Right? And I'm thinking if you're hanging there, your body would be going in and out of shock all the time. You would be losing consciousness all the time. And um, it would, you would hang there. It would take about three to four days for a person to die. So you hang there in the burning sun and without water, without nothing. So they would maybe give you something to just try and extend your suffering as long as possible. All the time with people walking past and laughing at you and mocking you. And then often people would, on the crosses, would fight back. The text where it says people would be swearing back or, you know, they would be urinating on the crowd or, you know, something. And what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't speak. He doesn't fight back on the cross. Not once. And um, so you would also lose control of your bodily functions. So if you're on the cross for like three days, at the bottom of the cross there would be a pool of urine and sweat and blood and feces. And that's how you would die. It is a truly, truly horrific way to die. Um, <coughs> there's a text in Isaiah. It says, By means of us, ustelt erom. I was so misformed that I nie meer a mens gelijk het nie, nie meer die voorkomst van a mens gehad het nie. And that's what it would have looked like, is that this is from the Passion, which is the most accurate, but it most probably was worse than that. This is the one from Grunewald, uh, which is one of my, uh, the pain in the hands, looks to me a little bit more realistic. So, I'm going to stick you a little bit in the book. Sorry, it's an Afrikaans, so just... In Gethsemane het Jesus geweet wat kom, wat die heiligmaking van die mensdom in die hele skepping sal kos. Bloeddruppels het gevorm op sy lijf van die spanning en saam met die sweetgrond geval. Jesus het een slapeloose nacht gehad, die antwoord hy dood. Hy is gearresteer en geslaan in die donkere put gegooi onder Kajafas huis. Die volgende ochtend vroeg is hy gehaal en die door en kroon is op sy kop gedruk. Bloed wat stroom oor sy gezicht en een mantel om sy lijf. Hy is nog geslaan, nog, ges, nog gespot, nog opgespoeg. Hy is gegesel, rauw geslaan tot by die dood. Hy het vir hom een zwaar gebruikte kruis gegeen, vol droe bloed 
en op sy rouwrug gegooi. Jesus is skaal uitgetrek, hy het sy kleren geloot, hy het met lang spijkers dier sy polse en voete gedruif en die zwaar kruis opgetrek en in die gat laat val. Jesus het beheer verloor sy lichaam, een poel van bloed, terene en feestes het gevorm onder die kruis. Mens het gelag en gespot. Red jouself as jy die Seen van God is en kom van die kruis af. Jesus was stil, hy het nie teruggeskel en geskreen nie. Vader vergeef hulle, want hulle weet nie wat hulle doen nie. Jesus het sy gees opgegee en sy laaste asem uitgeblaas. Dit is volbring. Jesus' lijf hang stil aan die kruis. Het reik soos rauw vlees en bloed. Die prijs vir die heiligmaking van die hele skepping is betaal. En dis die ding, dis hoe ons koning lyk. En ek denk, as mys dit nie verstaan nie, as jy nie verstaan dat dit is die beeld van christenskap nie, sacrifice, heiligmaking. Dit is hoe een koning lyk. Nie een koning op troon, nie een koning met groot mag en groot weermag nie, so. Dis Jesus, is die offerlam, wat die sonde van die wereld kom wegneem het. En nie net my en jou nie, alles. Dis Jesus' bloed wat die krake en die heel al oormaak en reg maak, en is hy die gebrokenheid en die seer en die sonde en die kwaad en die haat van een stuk in die skepping uit op hom geneem en sy bloed uitgegiet in plaas van ons. Hy het ons plek gevat en die prijs betaal, ons pak gevat, ons sweephouwe gevat, ons spijkers gevat, ons skok, die spot, die spoeg, die naaktheid, die verstootenheid het hy op hom gevat. En is sy bloed wat ons allemaal heilig maak en die hele skeping heilig maak het. En dis die punt. Ons eie righteousness, ons eie probeer om ons self heilig te maak. Hierdie tekst, dit word nie so vertaal in meeste van die vertalings nie, omdat dit so wild is, het mense er weer mooi nekies gemaakt. Het sê, we are like, we are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight. It's in the Jerusalem, in God's sight. We all wither like a leaf. Our sins carry us away like the wind. So ons het die, ons het die kruis nodig. Ons het die lam, die lam nodig. Nou, daar is een trek om je af te sluit. Wat baie keer gebeur het met die herders, as hy die lamme geboorte gegeet, die oeie geboorte gegeet, dan het van die lamme doodgegaan. Of van die oeie doodgegaan. So, wat gebeur het, as hy nou maar een ooi was, wat die lam gekryd, nie die lam is dood, en daar is een ooi wat die lam gekryd, maar die ooi is dood, dan het die skaapwachters, hy het probeer om die weeslammekie aan die ooi, wat sy lam nou net dood is, te connect, dat sy hem sal anneem. Maar dit was baie moeilik om het te doen. Dit het nie altijd gewerk nie. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so, last. so, the lamb, when, when did I start speaking Afrikaans? I don't even notice. <laughs> The quotes, okay, never mind, okay, sorry. So, the shepherds knew of a trick to get an uh, orphan lamb adopted by a ewe that just lost her lamb, right? So, it's a very difficult thing to do, but they knew a few tricks. So, one was to to rub the um, 
the lamb in the placenta fluid of the, of the other you so that you think it's her baby. But that would sometimes work. But there was only one trick that would always work. If they take the dead lamb and they slit its throat and covered, washed the living lamb in the blood of the dead lamb, the ewe would definitely adopt it. So the, literally, the blood of the dead lamb would save the life of the orphan lamb. And that is what Jesus did for all of us. And as we sang earlier, nothing but the blood can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood can make me whole again. And lucky for us, Jesus' blood is enough to make holy all of creation and put us all back into place. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your blood anew. Thank you, Lord, that you endured the most horrific way to die on this earth so that we and all that have come before us and all that will come after us and all of creation can be renewed and be made holy. Thank you, thank you for your sacrifice and for your grace. Forgive our sins. I pray this in your name. Amen.